Hello and welcome to Counterthought, a podcast dedicated to my counterthoughts about mainstream media, politics, and culture, and the impact on our nation. I am your host, Brian Fletter. You can follow this podcast on its Facebook page, Counterthought Podcast, on Instagram at counter underscore thought, and on Twitter at counter underscore podcast. Hey, thank you for joining me for episode eight of this passion project of mine known as Counterthought. The topic of this episode is feminism. Now, before you go ahead and skip to the next podcast on your list, bear with me, I promise. My takes are not going to be from a patriarchal standpoint. They're not going to be sexist. This is more so like a history lesson and then looking at current feminism and looking ahead for feminism. So give me a shot. Trust me. So please continue doing whatever you're doing as you listen to this episode and let's dive in. So what is feminism? The definition of feminism is the advocacy of women's rights on the basis of the equality of the sexes, male, female, socially, economically, culturally, and politically. Now, there are three primary types of feminism. There is radical feminism, liberal feminism, and cultural feminism. Feminism has four waves as far as the history goes. There is the first wave, the second wave, third wave, and the fourth wave. The first wave began in the late 19th century into the early 20th century and pretty much concluded with the crowning achievement of that time women's suffrage, so voting rights for women. The second wave spanned from the 1960s to the 1970s, and that second wave was focused on women's roles in society. And three types of feminism, primary types of feminism, emerged during that time. Mainstream feminism, also known as liberal feminism, radical feminism, and cultural feminism, which are the same three primary types I listed just a minute ago. Now, the third wave occurred in the 1990s, which was my childhood. And third wave feminism, the women uh, freely expressed themselves, uh, their individuality, their sexuality, and women chose how to live their lives. That was the overall goal of the 1990s third wave. Now, the fourth wave, there's a little bit of a disagreement, I guess, of whether or not we are still in the third wave or fully into the fourth wave. I think we are into the fourth wave. So the fourth wave of feminism is present day. Uh, the fourth wave of femi feminism continues to reckon with intersectionality and critics of white feminism, which they say took place primarily during the first and second waves. It wasn't so much looking for the rights of women on a broad scale, all women, all races. It was mainly focused on white women, because if you know your history, um, civil rights movement did not occur until the 60s. So the critics of white feminism, as it's called, which ignores the unique struggles of women of color on this fourth wave, expose how non-white feminists and their ideas have been suppressed. And also trans rights are a big part of conversation today. And feminism has often been an unwelcoming and hostile place for trans women and others who reject the gender binary, such as a biological woman and a biological male. And many of the fourth wave feminists 
are working to combat the exclusion of trans women. Now, like I mentioned a couple minutes ago, there are three primary types of feminism, radical feminism, liberal feminism, and cultural feminism. Let's look at each of them a little bit more. So radical feminism began during the second wave, which again is during the 1960s and 70s. And radical feminism opposes the patriarchy, opposes the patriarchy, which is male, like the male dominance, the male influence on society and culture and the way women have been viewed throughout time. So radical feminism, uh, it's a philosophy emphasizing the patriarchal roots of inequality between men and women or the social domination of women by men. Radical feminism views patriarchy as dividing societal rights, privileges, and power primarily along the lines of sex. And from that, oppressing women and privileging men. Radical feminism also tends to be more militant in its approach. Radical, the root word meaning getting to the root, a little more militant than other forms of feminism. And radical feminists aim to dismantle the patriarchy rather than making adjustments to the system that they're trying to change through legal changes. The second primary type is liberal feminism. Liberal feminism, the primary goal is gender equality in the public sphere, such as equal access to education, equal pay in the workplace, ending job sex segregation, and better working conditions. Uh, from the standpoint of liberal feminism, legal changes would make these goals possible. So unlike radical, which is trying to get to the root and not really take the legal route, uh, liberal feminism is looking to make these changes uh, legally through you know, actions through Congress and, and other measures. Liberal feminism also tends to rely on the state to gain equality, to see the state as the protector of individual rights. And unlike radical feminism, liberal feminism also focuses on how private life impedes or enhances public equality. Liberal feminism does tend to support marriage as an equal partnership, and more male involvement is what radical feminists would, I mean, liberal feminists would like to see. So not just, hey, woman, you stay in the kitchen and you care for the kids, I'll go to work. Good? Good. Nope. Equal partnership blending those roles that have existed for thousands of years. Liberal feminists support abortion and other reproductive rights because they have to do with the control of one's life and autonomy. And liberal feminism uh, wants to end domestic violence and sexual harassment and to remove the obstacles of women achieving on an equal level to men. Now, the third primary type is cultural feminism. Cultural feminism began also, also began during the second wave, and cultural feminism emphasizes the essential differences between men and women based on the biological differences in their reproductive capacity. Cultural feminism attributes the differences between men and women to distinctive and superior virtues in women. What women share provides a basis for the sisterhood or unity solidarity, and shared identity. Thus, cultural feminism also encourages building a shared women's culture. The, quote, essential differences, unquote, refers to the belief that gender differences are part of the essence of females and males. 
and that the differences are not chosen but are part of the nature of a woman or man. However, cultural feminists differ as to whether these differences are based on biology or enculturation. Cultural feminists also tend to value qualities identified with women as superior or and preferable to the qualities identified with men. Cultural feminists, there are four key things. Cultural feminists, one, advocate for equal valuing of female occupations, including parenting. Two, cultural feminists respect child care in the home and paying wages or salaries so that staying home is economically viable. Three, cultural feminism respects female values of care and nurturing. And four, cultural feminism works to balance a culture that overvalues male values of aggression and undervalues female values of kindness and gentleness. So over these course of the four waves of feminism, what exactly are some of the equal rights that women have fought for? Well, over time, some of the things that have been fought for, radical feminism fought for reproductive rights. So you can think Roe v. Wade. The freedom to make the choice to give birth, have an abortion, use birth control, or to get sterilized. Also, like in the first wave, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, the women's suffrage movement for the right to vote. During the second wave in the 60s and 70s, that second wave, the women were also pivotal in the civil rights movement. And then the third wave, you saw more of more women in the workplace having jobs that men traditionally had, more men caring and nurturing for the children at home. It was no longer the man works and the woman stays at home. There was more blending of those roles, as I mentioned just a little bit ago. Now, those are the things that feminists have accomplished. But what are some of the things that feminists are still fighting for? To this date, and this is uh, a list I took from the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, Feminists are still fighting for, are still fighting against, feminists are still fighting against pregnancy and parenting discrimination. Even though it is illegal, and it's been illegal, I believe, since the 70s, if a woman is employed by a business and she becomes pregnant, you know, obviously start the clock and hopefully in nine months, the woman, the mother will give birth have a maternity leave, which <laughs> that's a different topic here in America, but ideally, or at least right now, 12 weeks to stay at home with the child before need, feeling the need to come back to work. But there are reports, like I said, even though it's illegal, that employers will fire a woman if they become pregnant and then because of that pregnancy have to miss work or leave work for an extended period of time. Or if they allow the woman to come back, they're have been instances where the employer will actually demote the woman in her job role. Also, there's some parenting discrimination, which has to do with, again, the, the, the woman maybe being the primary caregiver once the baby has been born and needing those initial 12 weeks to bond with the baby. And employers not liking that and also discriminating because of that against the mother, against the woman. Feminists today are also still fighting against violence towards women, such as rape and physical abuse, sexual abuse as well. 
Also, they're fighting for equal pay as men. It's, set, it's stated that women for the same job roles receive 80 to 84 cents to the dollar that men receive. A big movement recently, I think in 2018, 2018, I think that's right, was the Me Too movement, which focused on sexual harassment and specifically sexual harassment in the workplace. And then last but not least, feminism, feminists are still fighting against not being seen purely as sexual objects. And this is an internal battle. Like I mentioned, the third wave was um, not really promoted, but the third wave looked at women and their sexuality and women being comfortable showing their sexuality and embracing their sexuality and you know not feeling like maybe during the times of the first and the second wave in, t- in history before that, but women not having to wear certain styles of clothing and being covered up and everything. That changed with the third wave. It still changes today. But that is an internal battle because you have, I guess, one, one faction that says, yeah, I'm embracing my sexuality and I'm going to wear whatever I want or don't want. And if I want to put on makeup and dress this way and that, then that is fine by me. Do not judge me. That is what I want to do. And other women say, yeah, but by you doing that, you are just making yourself a sexual object instead of the um, beauty and the brains that you have, the giftedness that you have, and the other features of being a woman, characteristics of being a woman. But now that I've gone through that uh, quick or brief history lesson, I have a question. Has feminism ostracized the conservative and Christian woman? If I had to go back to those three primary types of feminism, radical, liberal, and cultural, if I had to fit a conservative woman, conservative being a political belief, Christian woman, into any of those three types, it would be cultural. Like I said, cultural women most closely fits. Um, At least cultural women embrace the differences between a woman and a man and seems to be less focused on trying to bring the woman to be just like the man, but instead embracing the differences that come with being a woman and seeing those as superior to a woman. So if a woman is a mother and wants to stay at home, cultural feminism supports that. That is something that you can do. You can stay home and nurture your child. That is something that God created in a woman that is different from a man. A man was created as a provider. A woman is a nurturer. Again, cultural feminism sees the differences in women and men as an asset for women. Politically speaking, looking at conservative women, conservative women have been U.S. ambassadors. They have been governors. They have been United States representatives. 30 were elected in 2020. Conservative women have also been U.S. senators. There are eight, currently there are eight Currently, there are eight U.S. senators that are women, conservative women. And over the course of history, there have been 22 of them. Conservative women have also run for vice president and also the president of the United States. But those women aren't celebrated, at least not publicly. They don't seem like they are embraced by the broader feminism movement because of their political beliefs. 
Now, societal and culturally, radical feminism is where you find the critique of motherhood, the critique of marriage, the critique of the nuclear family, the critique of sexuality, and the critique of how much of our culture is based on patriarchal assumptions. And as I said earlier, cultural feminists, they advocate for the equal value of female occupations, including parenting. Cultural feminists also respect child care in the home, paying wages and salaries so that staying home is an economically viable option. Cultural feminism also respects female values of care and nurturing. And cultural feminism works to balance a culture that overvalues male values of aggression and undervalues female values of kindness and gentleness. And you see examples of this in studies about the success of corporations with a woman as the CEO and or a woman or multiple women on the board of directors of large corporations and how they result in a more profitable or prosperous company. Now, conservative women and conservative Christian women, they also, like cultural feminism, support a woman working and a woman who wants to stay at home. Conservative women also support the nuclear family and marriage, traditional marriage, husband and wife, biological man, biological woman. And if you want to hear more thoughts that I have about the nuclear family, please go back and listen to episode four, which is all about the nuclear family. It's a short episode. It's about, I think, 18 minutes is what it turned out to be. But go back and listen to that. However, even though those similarities exist between cultural feminism and a conservative woman, it seems to be the main belief of feminism, present-day feminism, that ostracizes a conservative woman is that they do not support abortion. My body, my choice. Right? We hear that all the time. My body, my choice. Abortion is women's health care. There are literally, literally competing annual marches in Washington, D.C. about this. There is the Women's March and the Right to Life March. Both draw thousands. And if you want to talk about an attack on women, look no further than abortion. Abortion has resulted in tens of millions of innocent lives taken because of the irresponsibility and selfishness of those consenting women and men. Future thought leaders and future members of the feminist movement, gone. Now, according to the Independent Women's Forum, IWF.org, there are policies and laws today that threaten the progress made for biological women. They claim redefining the term sex to mean gender identity legally erases biological women from civil rights laws and undermines other laws put in place to protect women and girls from discrimination and harm. They say, the Independent Women's Forum, all that work with the change of the definition of sex to gender identity can result in those rights that have been gained over now 100 years' time gone. The protection that was made, the opportunities that were made, gone. All in the name of inclusivity. Nowhere has this been more evident than transgender women participating in female sports, which is a very hot topic today. You turn on the national news, you'll see a story. Turn on the local news, 
probably hear a story. Surf a sports website, you'll definitely find a story. Getting closer and closer to the Tokyo Olympics, and these stories are coming out more and more and more. So that begs the question, what's more important? The rights of biological girls and women or the rights of trans girls and women? You may remember that in my episode about intellectual dishonesty, I talked about this. And I'm going to play that clip for you right now. So how can one say that a transgender woman, which again is a man that transitions into a woman, how can they say that them competing in women's athletics, female athletics, is feminism? And we're su- and they're supposed to support that. I disagree. Like I said, it's anti-feminism. Because all you're doing is you're taking a man. Yes, they're changed. They go through hormone treatments and everything. But you're taking the structure of a man and dropping them into a woman's domain. That's the definition of anti-feminism. Transgender women in athletics is counter to the objective of Title IX of the Education Amendments Act of 1972. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Um, Title IX usually is more popular whenever it's talked about with athletics than within education. But Title IX does not just protect, or is not just for women, it's for men as well. And it states that no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Title IX, in other words, applies to all educational institutions that receive federal funding, public or private, including the athletic programs. The purpose of Title IX in athletics was meant to achieve equality between women's and men's athletics. I studied it in school. Um, As I mentioned in episode one, I, I majored in sports management. I have a bachelor and a master's in that. In one of the courses we had to take, we talked about Title IX. And the reason that Title IX, or the way it's mostly applied within athletics, is to bring women's athletics to be equal to men's athletics. And it's to prevent the male sports from having all the teams because male sports generate revenue more so than the female sports, especially football. Football at most colleges is the only income-producing revenue minus expenses sport at a school. Now, some big-time men's basketball programs, Duke, Kentucky, Kansas, so on and so forth, they earn money, and maybe a handful of baseball programs bring in a positive net income. So Title IX was created to prevent there only being male sports and to have female sports, and not only just female sports, but for those female sports to have the same treatment as the male sports. And what do I mean by treatment? Well, in athletics, Title IX is broken into three different parts, equal participation, scholarship, and other benefits. Other benefits include things like equipment, tutoring, locker rooms, training facilities, and and so on. And I argue that there can be no honest denial of males being physiologically designed to be bigger, faster, stronger than females. That's just how they were created. And I believe this is one reason why men and women don't play on the same sports teams. Males would have the advantage almost all the time. Have you ever compared like Olympic records, especially in track and field? The last place guy in the 100 meters is faster than the fastest woman. I remember in, let's see, when was this? This was in college when I was helping out with women's basketball. I remember every now and then play against the girls, just, you know, shooting around or whatever after a practice or maybe on a Saturday afternoon or something like that, just, you know, 
play a quick game of pickup and me and some of the other either equipment managers or practice players, whatever, you know, just staff would play. And I remember for myself personally, I'm taller, I'm 6'3". I would go up against some of the forwards or the bigs, you know, those that play like the 4'5 position, power forward, center. And I mean, I'm not considered tall in basketball terms on, on the male scale, but I'd be considered tall on the female scale. And I remember being able to body up those girls, no problem. Not saying they didn't score on me, but I was able to body them up, block shots. Number one practice, uh, the coach told me to tone down the defense a little bit because I was uh, blocking too many shots. And I mean, I wasn't there. I wasn't at school on some basketball scholarship. I just played basketball growing up in intramurals and played a little bit in high school. And I was able to do that. So no one can honestly tell me that men and women from like a power speed perspective are equal. It's just, it's just not true. That's dishonest, intellectually dishonest. I believe that when you allow biologically born men, now women, to participate in female sports, that that is antithetical to feminism and to Title IX and is a blatant takeover by males of women's sports. All right, about this topic. This past week, the New Zealand Olympic team had their first transgender woman qualify for the team as a weightlifter at 43 years old. This transgender woman didn't begin the transition process until her 30s, which allowed her to fully grow into her male frame. Now, she meets all of the requirements set by the IOC, International Olympic Committee. So, meets all those requirements. So, nothing against her there. She did what she was supposed to do, but didn't transition until her 30s, able to fully grow well beyond puberty into the male frame. And in weightlifting, we know that a larger frame, the greater potential you have to lift more weight. Beyond the Olympic level, there are a multi multitude of cases brought by girls at the high school level against the fairness of transgender girls competing in girls' sports. The rights that women fought so hard to ensure a level of fairness across athletics, society, culture, politics, and education are reduced when the physical privilege of a boy or a man can compete at higher physical levels than biological women. The time and effort that was put in by those biological girls, biological women, to compete at their highest level is becoming pointless. Why work for a decade or more, two decades or more, to have someone come in a year after they decided to transition and be able to surpass you in the blink of an eye? In order to preserve the equality for biological women, there needs to be a separate division in athletics for transgender athletes. Now, after everything that I've said during this episode, which I hope you agree did not have any sort of patriarchal or sexist tone, I have two questions for you to think about. Has the inclusivity of broader feminism become self-defeating? And also, is it time for conservative women to leave today's feminism movement and create a new term and movement of their own? All right, that's it for this episode. Remember to subscribe and engage with me on Instagram at counter underscore thought, on Twitter at counter underscore podcast, and on the Counterthought podcast page on Facebook. Thank you for listening to Counterthought.